0: Well, it's such a privilege for me to be here. Thank you for your warm welcome. Um, I've, over the last couple of years, gotten to know uh, some of your pastors a little bit, and uh, that's been a real joy and a privilege for me. Uh, and so, I, I've, I've heard a great deal about this congregation and to be here is, uh, is a real privilege. We love uh, the Cairn people who are here, and, uh, and we love what's happening at the church. So, thank you for this uh, warm welcome an invitation. It's always a delight, especially not just to to be here, but to be able to open God's Word together. So I'd urge you to keep your Bibles open to the passage that was just read from 1 Kings 11. And uh, if you would, please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the gift of your Word. We would be in the dark if you had not revealed yourself to us in and through it. We, we wouldn't be able to understand the world in which you've placed us. We wouldn't be able to make sense of our own condition and we wouldn't know of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you so much for your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work through your word this morning that he would guide our thoughts, that he would open our ears, that he would convict us of sin and train us in righteousness that we might be more thoroughly equipped for every good work. We, we thank you for the promise that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we ask that your spirit would do his work through your word this morning and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a little less than 90 years ago, in 1929, August of, of 1929, the uh, the U.S. stock market hit what was then an, an all-time high. It had been on the rise steadily. Uh, things had gotten better and better and better financially through the 1920s. And the stock market had reached this amazing height, creating great wealth for a, for a whole range of people in the United States. And, of course, this affected mostly the people at the very top. They were the ones who were the greatest beneficiaries. But actually, in the 1920s, uh, things got steadily better for most people, not everyone, but for, for many, many people in the United States. Even the average salary of working people went up considerably throughout that decade. And so, and so if you sat there in August, a little less than 90 years ago, and you looked out at the nation, you'd say, things are just getting better and better and better. But If you know anything about US history at that time, you know that it wasn't but a couple months later that the entire stock market collapsed. In October of 1929, there was this great series of crashes in the stock market. By 1933, over half of the banks in the United States had failed completely. And so all the money that the depositors had was was gone. There was about 30% unemployment in 1933. It went through this long period known as the Great Depression. Now now people have looked back on this and tried to make sense of it. What was it that happened? And there are all kinds of economic theories that revolve around the Great Depression and the stock market crash. Different people give different explanations for why it happened, when it happened, and what exactly was going on there financially. But the point is, there was this moment where everything seemed to be going well, and then almost immediately afterwards, it crashed, and the explanations were vague and unclear. Even now, with the distance of history, we're not exactly sure what happened. The reason I bring that up is because 1 Kings chapter 11 is a little bit like that. If you read through 1 Kings 1 through 10, if you're reading your Bible and trying to make sense of this book in the Bible, 1 Kings 1 through 10 really lays out this incredible scenario of Solomon's reign. And it's not perfect, there are problems in it, there are difficulties that emerge that you can sort of see here and there. But by and large, you get to the end of 1 Kings 10, and you've been through the roaring 20s of Israel's history. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 10, in my Bible it's on the same page as the passage that was just read. If you look at 1 Kings 10, uh, 27, it says, And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah." And it talks about all the horses they imported from Egypt and the chariots they imported from Egypt for very, very low prices. And it talks about all the exports of the nation of Israel. So financially, at least, and in a lot of ways, Israel was flying high at the end of 1 Kings chapter 10. And in fact, if you look even at the extent of their land... The, the, the nation of Israel reached its greatest extent right there under, under Solomon's reign at the end of 1 Kings 10. But on the other hand, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, a few things jump out. Because if you look at 1 Kings 11:23, again just after the passage that was read for us, it says, God raised up an adversary to him in verse 23. And in verse 31, it says, He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. And if you look down at verse 35, I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, the ten tribes. There is something that happens In 1 Kings chapter 11, that moves Israel's history from this period of great expansion, great prosperity, almost unbelievable success nationally, to being broken apart, to being divided as a nation, to being really torn apart by enemies and torn apart within. The kingdom gets taken from Solomon's family, given into the hands of other men. So what is the cause? Well, unlike our own depression, uh, in 1 Kings 11, the Bible tells us very clearly what the cause is, why we move from the end of 10 and the great prosperity in Israel to the end of 11 and the clear picture of Israel breaking apart, falling apart at the seams and being attacked by her enemies. So what's the problem here? What is the hinge? What's the... What's the great moment in Israel's history that changes everything? Well, when we look at 1 Kings 11, uh, one of the things that jumps out right here in the first few verses is that Solomon takes a tremendous number of wives for himself. Maybe that struck you when you heard the passage read. I know it strikes me every time I think about it, it's hard to even imagine these 700 wives and 300 concubines living in Solomon's palace. But that's what it says in verse 3. He had 700 wives who were princesses and, and 300 concubines. You know, if you read the commentaries, they'll tell you, well, this was, this was Solomon's way of making alliances with other nations. And that's, and that's true. But nonetheless, uh, those 700 wives and 300 concubines directly contravened what the Lord had said in In Deuteronomy 17, God said when Israel has a king, they're not to take wives for themselves. They're not to take multiple wives for themselves because this will cause all kinds of problems. And Solomon did the exact opposite of that with the 700 wives and the 300 concubines. But there's a deeper issue in 1 Kings 11 that goes beyond the very obvious and sort of astonishing number of wives that Solomon had and the deeper issue that the Bible brings to our attention is the issue of the heart the issue of what Solomon loved in his heart look at verses 1 and 2 it says King Solomon loved many foreign women and look Again, at at verse 2, the same thing. They will turn, don't don't go after them, the Lord says, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. If you read through the first five verses of this chapter, you'll see the, the word love and heart come up over and over and over again. See, the real issue, the core issue in this chapter isn't just the fact that Solomon took all these wives which was against the command of the Lord but that Solomon had subtly over a long period of time shifted the focus of his heart he had shifted what he loved there are a couple ways why where the bible makes this really clear for us in the passage If you look at uh, verse uh, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it uses this word love by saying Solomon clung to these wives in love. And that verb that's used there for Solomon clinging to these women in love is the same word that we see back in Genesis. It's the word that God says is supposed to describe people who are married to one another that they leave their father and mother a man leaves his father and mother and and clings to his wife or cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh and here's Solomon cleaving to holding on to all these foreign wives see his love had changed his heart had begun to change And this is particularly poignant because if you know anything about the story of Solomon, even earlier in 1 Kings, 1 Kings is very clear at the beginning in 1 Kings 3 that Solomon loved the Lord with his whole heart. And in 1 Kings 3, this love is expressed when when the Lord comes to Solomon and says, Solomon, I'll I'll grant you whatever you want. If you want great wealth or or whatever it is, just let me know and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, Lord, what I want to have is a a hearing heart. A heart that hears your word and responds to it. An understanding and a wise heart. So at the beginning of his reign, Solomon was one who was characterized by love of the Lord. And and, and God gave him a heart to know and understand his word. But, But here in chapter 11, Solomon's heart was elsewhere. His love and attention was turned in a different direction. So, what we see in 1 Kings 11 is the key issue, the key turning point in Israel's history is really in the heart of this one king. You know, if you read through the Bible, you'll find all kinds of admonitions about the heart. Proverbs tell us to guard our hearts. Jesus says that it is out of the heart that come all kinds of wicked things, murder and theft and adultery. And if you go back even in the Old Testament into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is very clear about the importance of the heart. Uh, We read in Deuteronomy 6, "You, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And here's Solomon, loving these other wives, and having his heart turned away from the Lord. And the hard part about this focus on the heart in the Bible is, you know, people can't always see what's going on in your heart. In fact, they very frequently don't know what's going on in your heart. There are all kinds of ways in which we mask what's really going on inside of us we sort of cover them up with all kinds of different expressions but what the Bible tells us is this is where the battle really lies it's at the level of the heart it's at the level of what you love Just think about this for a second where where does your mind go when you're not really thinking about anything Or when you consider what would really make your life complete, what would really make you a success, what would really bring you great joy and blessing, where do you go with that? That might reveal something about what's inside your heart, what you really love. Now, the way it works itself out in Solomon's life We see in verse 7, I want to just give you a a little taste of what happens, although you you heard it read earlier. At the end of the day, what happens is it says in verse 7, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh the abomination of Moab and for Molech the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem so so you see what began in Solomon's heart what began in a place that no one could see what began as a subtle redirecting of what he loved actually led to him doing these horrible things and setting up these abominations just outside Jerusalem and these abominations ensnared all the people of Israel throughout the rest of Israel's history to the point where you can read the book of Jeremiah and Jeremiah talks about the people of Israel being ensnared by Molech and being ensnared by Chemosh because of these high places. So what's in Solomon's heart and what has captured his love and has captured his affection does bear itself out in terrible ways. But you know one of the scariest verses here, actually, I think, is in verse 4. Because after describing Solomon's loves, after describing Solomon's heart, here's what it says. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true, to the Lord his God. Now the thing I think it, that's so frightening about that is Solomon's heart was subtly changing. His affections were being subtly captured. But it didn't play out right away. This is one of the things I'm sure you've seen if you've watched people over the course of their lives. You, you you think they have one set of priorities. Maybe you think they're very committed to the Lord. But they get a little bit of extra money and extra freedom, and you know, the mortgage is paid off, and they don't want to gather with God's people any longer. Suddenly they, they can do something else, and so they do something else. The things that had captured their hearts perhaps years before Now they actually get to work them out because they have the opportunity to do it. Sometimes you see it when people have have children. They themselves appear very dedicated to the Lord. But when they raise their children, the dedication that they want their children to have is to all kinds of other things. You sort of scratch your head and say, Boy, I... I thought this person was committed to raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And, but they seem awfully consumed with Chemosh University and wherever their kids are going to go. And that's, that's a strange thing. It's just revealing their heart. And that's what happened with Solomon. It wasn't clear right away that Solomon had turned away from the Lord, but when he was old it became very clear where his affections lay. So be careful with your heart even now. Don't give yourself any excuses and say, well, I haven't acted out on all these things that I consider priorities. Oh, you may not have yet. But what the Bible teaches us is that these things can take a long time to grow up in the heart. But the fruit they bear is a horrible thing to watch. So after time, we see the outcome in verses 5 through 8. Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. You know, it's interesting the way This is phrased here because it doesn't say that Solomon worshipped the Lord and worshipped Milcom. Although I'm sure by all appearances it may have looked that way. We know from other accounts that Solomon still gave lip service to his worship of the Lord. But the writer of 1 Kings doesn't allow Solomon to get off the hook that easily. Solomon can't trick himself into thinking he's actually got most of his attention fixed on the Lord and a little fixed on Milcom. What it says here is that Solomon went after Ashtaroth and after Milcom. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. His heart was changed. And of course that changed the investments he made because he builds these high places for his wives, for Chemosh and for Molech, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So we need to be very rigorous as we look at our own hearts. What is it that your attention is fixed on? What is it that maybe has subtly begun to take the place of the Lord in your life. Well, let's look at the Lord's response in verses 9 through 13. What we see in the Lord's response is really something very striking. The Lord shows both His, the severity of His judgment, but also the magnitude of His grace. Look at the severity of the Lord's judgment here in verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Again, Solomon may think of himself as devoting just a small portion of his heart to these things, but the Lord sees it as a total rebellion against him. And the Lord had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he didn't keep what the Lord commanded. So what does the Lord do? Well, the Lord acts in judgment In verse 11, since this has been your practice and you haven't kept my covenant and my statutes, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Now think about how severe a judgment this was. Solomon may have thought the same thing that most of us think. He may have thought, well, my sin is only relatively small. I still mostly devote myself to the Lord. And he probably also thought, well, the things that I'm doing, if they have an effect on anyone, maybe they'll have an effect on these pagan wives, but in any case, they already worship their gods, and, and maybe it'll affect me a little bit. But no, do you see how significant God's judgment is? Solomon's sinned, the turning away of his heart, the change in his affections, is going to affect the entire kingdom that was under His control. You think your sin only affects you? You think the change in your heart, subtle and gradual, just impacts your life? Not according to the Bible. An example after example, teaching after teaching, We see the effects of sin spread widely. None of us are kings over a nation, but we all have spheres of influence that are significant. Our families, those whom we work with, friends, brothers and sisters here at church, you think the change in your heart, the change in your love, will only affect you. No, God's judgment actually goes through Solomon but beyond Solomon and affects the whole nation ensnares them for generations because his heart wasn't true to the Lord. And yet at the same time, look also at the grace of God that's on display because even though Solomon's heart has turned from the Lord the Lord says for the sake of David your servant your father i won't do it in your days i'll tear it out of the hand of your son again what did the son done nonetheless the son is going to be judged however i will not tear away all the kingdom but i will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem That I had chosen. What we see in Solomon's judgment is the severity of God's judgment. Your sin, your, 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 your wandering heart will not go unjudged by the Lord, and it will affect people whom you care about in ways that you would not expect. And yet, the Lord is still faithful to his promise. The Lord made promises to David. He promised that one of David's sons would sit on David's throne forever. He promised that there would be a seed that would come out of David's line. He promises that there will be someone who comes from the tribe of Judah, a Messiah, to save His people from their sins. And that promise that God made is not undone by Solomon's sin. And you see, here's where we see the faithfulness of God. Despite your sin, despite your divided heart, God's promises are still sure. Even though Solomon turns out to be uh, not, turns out not to be the promised son of David, there is in the scriptures, a promised son of David, who keeps God's law perfectly. And does so on behalf of those who turn to him in faith. If you keep reading through First and Second Kings and through all the Old Testament and you arrive at the Gospels, you see the portrayal of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the promised Son of David, who does all the things that Solomon doesn't do, devotes himself totally to the Lord, and in fact dies for our sins. So God's promises aren't undone by the judgment, but the judgment is still very severe. So what do we do we do with all this as we try to process what the scriptures are teaching us through the example of Solomon and through the work of the Lord in Solomon's life? Well, I think one key thing we can take away from this passage is that the the real issue, the real hinge point in your life is is what's going on in your heart. That's the important first question for you to ask. And and that points us to a truth that Jesus drives home over and over again that that it's necessary for us to be born again by the Holy Spirit. The Lord says this very clearly in John chapter 3 that you have to be born again. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says your heart needs to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But a little bit later in John 6, Jesus promises that the one who comes to me, he, I will not cast out. And I will raise him up on the last day. Totally transformed. So, so one thing that you might need to consider as you see the example of Solomon, the really terrible example of Solomon, is the state of your own heart. Have you come to Jesus Christ in faith? Have you been transformed by the Holy Spirit and you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? The heart is the, the key issue at play in Solomon's life and in yours. But perhaps you are a believer. Perhaps you are trusting in Jesus and his promise of salvation and what he accomplished for you on the cross. And then I would say this, you need to test yourself. You know, I mentioned uh, earlier that perhaps this can come out as you relate to your own children, we see an example of that in Matthew's gospel. Remember, James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want one of us to sit on your right hand and one on your left in glory. And Jesus says, you don't understand anything about what I'm doing or what authority is. But they want this great position for themselves. But what we find out in Matthew's gospel that's very interesting is actually it was their mother who brought them to Jesus to ask this question. Great way of identifying your own heart is to see what are you conveying to those under your care? And if you don't have children, the Bible enjoins us over and over again to test ourselves, to look at our own hearts. First John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a very clear test, isn't it? For each of our hearts, for where our love lies. Another implication of this is that we have to attend to our hearts. We have to fill our minds and our hearts with God's word. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119. He says, I've stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. What do you fill your mind with? What could you rattle off at a moment's notice? Is it the word of God? Well, if that's not in your heart, something else is. I can take you in all kinds of unexpected directions. As a congregation, how do you deal with this question of the heart? Well, here, it's uh, providential, I suppose, that uh, Jay read earlier from uh, Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, the writer's dealing with a congregation that was in danger of drifting away in in its heart, in its collective heart. And here are some of the things that The writer to Hebrews says for the congregation, fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Lift up the drooping hands in your midst and strengthen the weak knees. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. Uh, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it become defiled and that no one is sexually immoral. Those are for the congregation to guard the hearts of those within it. Hebrews 12 also says, Do not refuse him who is speaking. What's your attitude towards the word of God as you hear it read and preached? And finally, in Hebrews 12, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. These are the things we're commanded to do as Christians in a local church. These are the things we're commanded to do as individual Christians, knowing that our hearts, even hearts that have been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, are deceitful, sick. and Who can understand them? But thanks be to God, the scriptures tell us that we have a king greater than Solomon who can do a work in our hearts even now and to whom we look as we strive for holiness in this life. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you.